0: I think 2018 was one of those critical times in history throughout the world where there was the real snap. And it comes from the values in the community that have shifted you know, significantly, in particular over the last five years. I think this is a really good Petri dish for change.
1: Hello and welcome to Travel Beyond, where we partner with leading destinations to explore the greatest challenges facing communities and the planet, surfacing their most inspiring solutions. I'm David Archer, Editorial Manager at Destination Think, and I'm recording from the coastal village of Geeds, British Columbia, in Haida Gwaii, the territory of the Haida Nation. And... This is a show where we look at the role of travel in the world and choose to highlight the destinations that are global leaders. We talk to the change makers who are addressing regenerative travel through action in their communities and often from the bottom up. And we're actively looking for the best examples of efforts to regenerate economies, communities and ecosystems altogether, as we're hearing about in Queenstown Lakes this season. So do drop us a line if you have a story to share with us.
2: Hi, David, and hi, everybody. I'm Rodney Payne, the CEO at Destination Think. I'm recording from Revelstoke in British Columbia, Canada, a city on the territory of four First Nations, the Sinaiks, the Sequetmec, the Silks, and the Tunaha.
1: Hi, Rodney, and last episode, we heard from two leaders with the Queenstown Lakes District Council, which is the local government. Michelle Morse, the General Manager of Strategy and Policy, and Mayor Glenn Lures. And now that we've heard from some people who are shaping policy from the top down, let's learn about the grassroots movement behind regeneration and sustainability in Queenstown Lakes. To do that, in a moment, we'll hear from Monique Kelly, who is a local leader in sustainability. Monique co-founded the WOW organization and the annual WOW Summit, which is about creating and fostering tangible, social, and environmental change at every level. And Monique is also the co founder of Revology and the Revology Concept Store and Tea House in Wanaka, which provides ethically sourced household items made from sustainable materials. And we'll provide a link to those in the show notes. So, Rodney, in this interview, you and Monique both talk about times when you had personal epiphanies about the climate crisis. And you mentioned 2018 as being a critical year. Can you talk a bit about that? And, and have you noticed a change in other people as well?
2: I think uh, Monique and my my conversations with her are some of the most memorable I've had. And we did share a lot about our individual epiphanies that I think happened around the same time. And, you know, for me, growing up uh, and and studying environmental law at a young age, I think I was always sort of background conscious of the impacts we were having on the climate but I always figured that somebody would be working on that and you know if it was really a problem um, you know that would be a thing that we were addressing and Monique and I talk at length about that I think that I am talking to more and more people as you know many of us have had time to pause and um, spend more time engaging with the world around us and life is very busy in a lot of places, um, that have the luxury to be thinking about things like climate and many of us are sort of poking our heads up out of the the little gopher hole and looking around and, and starting to become more aware of, uh, our environments. I'm definitely hearing more people talk about that. And, you know, I think within our industry the, the travel and and destination space, the topic of, um, climate, you know, destabilization is definitely hitting mainstream. Uh, you know, I've spoken at a number of events, giving keynotes on, you know, how I think climate, uh, disrupts our industry and, and what, uh, what we need to do about it. And I think, you know, we, we never saw that a few years ago.
1: Yeah. My own perspective on the climate crisis mirrors yours in in some ways in that it's become a lot clearer since about 2017, 2018. Um, And I think that for me, it had to do with the IPCC reports becoming much more dire and that seeming to strike a chord uh, amongst a wider group of people. But it is funny, like thinking about growing up and hearing about the risks of climate change. And yeah, a lot of us just kind of assume that other people have got it taken care of.
2: I think we also heard dates around 2050 and 2100 and probably didn't really engage with those dates as well. And a lot of the things we were expecting to happen at some point, if there was no change, are actually happening a lot faster and a lot worse uh, than we realized. And and they're becoming hard to ignore, right? A lot of the, the very extreme weather events uh, are happening all over the world and they're having very impactful and disruptive consequences
1: for sure yeah and and I've noticed the, the momentum changing in the travel industry as well to address this um, and and like I said off the top we're we're looking for those places and, and projects that are that are truly accelerating action that will impact the climate for the better and reduce the risk. And and that's why this project is so important. And Rodney, I think those personal moments of change can often lead to systemic change. And and systemic change is something that it, it can appear nebulous in people's minds because it's it's uh, it's not a category that many people are used to thinking about and talking about necessarily. Um how do you think about systemic change and 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 how do individuals relate to that?
2: There's often a debate that I think is unhelpful around whether, you know, decarbonizing and r- reducing our footprint is an individual responsibility or whether it's a, you know, a societal or government responsibility. And I think it's really unhelpful to talk about that in a binary way because the reality is we need both. And as people become aware and concerned about climate and think about their actions, those actions can influence people around them and you can influence places you work, the places you live, uh, you can, you know, have political influence as an individual. And I think that can, that can grow to become system-wide, uh, top-down change as well. And I don't think we can just have one or the other because it is, uh, very messy and um it's hard to pinpoint what exactly leads to tipping points for positive change Uh, so you know we're kind of in a situation where we need everything
1: yeah it is it is messy i think that's a very good way to put it so now we'll drop in on the conversation between rodney and monique as they reflect on the pathway to reaching carbon zero by 2030 some of the obstacles to overcome, and some examples of how this change is already happening in the Queenstown Lakes community.
2: One of the burning questions I have for you is, how did this become possible here? Like we've worked with hundreds of places around the world trying to use tourism as a force for good for the community and and for cultural change. Because tourism tells stories and and tourism has wealth and privilege, that can and should be used to make the world a better place. But I don't think I've ever seen a place like here that has the momentum and ingredients like Queenstown and Monaco. And why, why? like why did that happen here?
0: So uh, I I think that this place has uh, something about it where you are in the environment, you have no ability to not to ignore it, So, and, and people come here because they love this place uh, I think I brought my husband here for the first time um, he's French, came over in 2001 and he immediately got here and was like oh my gosh this is incredible and your parents live here so we can come here for holiday, oh my gosh this is amazing um, there was that element of you are surrounded by nature, you you really understand that you're part of it, so I think that there's that uh, there. There's also a sense of, of um, us getting into, you know, this is our, in essence, our playground, it's where we grow our food, it's where we, um, we have our maybe our feet a little bit firmer in the soil here than in other places. I think that those roots, um, if you came here hundreds of years ago or one day ago there is something that draws you to this place and gives you that sense of belonging. So there's all that love of place um, which is here and for me it was also coming at it uh, after working with the um, ILO for so long and part of what I was in the policy and standards team but part of our teams did technical cooperation and, and they were working with communities to really transform them in terms of um, employment issues such as child labour or uh, forced labour um, as well as others. Um, And there are certain ingredients within a community that can really help it to become uh, help it transform really quickly and I saw the size of this town as being very um, and the size of the district um, being a real advantage to change because it's big enough to have a lot of incredible resources in terms of people here to and that who have that connection to place Um, but also um, not too big that it has lost that sense of connection so I think one of the things that you really get um, and it and it probably ripples down you know throughout Otago and Southland as well that sense of connection to community you have Uh, there's probably one degree of separation between you and everybody else in the community so that brings accountability with it um, and accountability for your actions in terms of how you are treating this place and if you are treating it with disrespect uh, and your footsteps are heavier than others then you'll be called out for it so you have that consciousness all the time and you want to um, be part of a community that is actually ensuring that our kids and our grandkids and those future generations in 500 years can also appreciate the things that we appreciate. So there's a whole lot of complexities but my you know it basically comes down for I think this is a really good petri dish for change um, and innovation. There's enough people that are willing to push the edges and innovate and and really go far like with the 2030 goal. Um, but it took time.
2: And tell me about that journey so you mentioned the ILO I really want to know about your background and what led you into where you're spending a lot of your time when you're not running your store um but I I also really want to know about what took time right what what happened and what were the things that you have tried and worked and not worked to to help create the foundation
0: You know how you've got to understand first of all where you came from. So, and it's about the whakapapa. uh, The Maori talk about it, um, it, and it relates to all of us. You know where we came from is so important. And uh, my ancestors came out into New Zealand um, because of the famine in Ireland, in the uh, 1870s onwards, and they'd been decimated over there, and they came to this new place and really started to. Uh, that love of this land and and trying to make it a better place came from there. So coming from a a people uh, where storytelling and um, education and poetry and literature was such an important factor, bringing that with them into this new place, um, understanding they were subsistence farmers, understanding that land is really important was another Uh, element that came through Um, but then the opportunities that this new land has given them and I am my mum was the first to be educated at university um, in her family and then thinking that this next generation some myself and my siblings were the next and I had decided to go into law school after my mother said you need to do something where you're able to be independent Um, to be able to stand on your own two feet and she's guided me into law and I think that was something that I really really appreciate Um, because she saw a part of me that really was for justice and I think that we've got that in in common you know that what does fairness mean what does justice mean and my driver is impact like how can I make an impact so going into law school I um, did everything to avoid anything to do with corporate law and really focused on human rights Um was r- lucky enough or, or provoked luck I think and chance and rocked up to the ILO one day um, and saying I need a job and and they employed me and I was able to work with them at the policy and standards level on what they called at that time the integrated approach which was a systems approach to um, different topics, and the first was occupational safety and health, um, but then migrant workers, we worked on things like child labour, um, but that was a really uh, incredible foundation in terms of systems thinking for me, uh, and the impact that um, grassroots can have, and the importance I think of top down, bottom up, and how those two interrelate, and how important both are. Then in 2014, um, uh, we decided after 14 years in uh, Geneva decided to come back to uh, New Zealand with my husband and my t- two children to be close to my parents here in Wanaka. And for a couple of years we set up a company called Revology, and I helped him while also consulting um, with the ILO. And it was in 2018 and I think 2018 was uh, one of those critical times in history throughout the world where there was the real snap the IPCC report came out um, which had a huge effect on actually galvanizing action Um, School Strike for Climate. Um, We had decided at the beginning of the year myself and Anna Craig who I was working with in Rivology to go to uh, business networking and we'd seen this film called Jeremy Rifkin's Third Industrial Revolution and it really sparked in us this thought that we, we, all we're doing is focusing on this little bit um, in front of our computer and it's like we had blinkers on that were just suddenly taken off and going how can we use our skills and use what we know and um, to get a community to actually start to change because it, it really worried me about the implications in terms of the people and what this transition meant um, for employment um, for, uh, in terms of shifting behaviour, uh, all of the... It fundamentally is going to have to change. The, the way we live has to change. And I think we all felt that. I don't know if um, 2018 was one of those years for you, but it definitely was for us.
2: I feel like listening to you talk is like therapy because I think everything you're saying is almost the same as my words. I, I almost don't need to tell you my journey because you just explained it. Um, so my moment, and I think a lot of people have a moment followed by a, a period of walking around, looking at everything around us and realising that it's all built off a system that can't continue. One way or another it's not going to continue and you look at the excavator over there and the car and every single thing that we're sitting on and using that all needs to be completely rethought and reinvented, which is was extremely frightening and I think I went through all of the stages over probably three or six months. and. I luckily have a very, very patient wife, and I think I spent more than my waking hours reading and learning and researching. And for me, I don't know if you ever read Jem Bendel's paper on deep adaptation. No, I haven't. It was, it, it also came out in 2018. I didn't find it until um, you mentioned blinkers, and I think a lot about silos. I think modern society has us all working really hard to to try and thrive. And and when I say us all, I mean, you know, the few hundred million privileged people in Western society and, you know, those like us who are trying to pay off a mortgage and trying to sort of leave a, leave a legacy for your family and do all the things that we've been conditioned to want to do. And it's the hamster wheel effect, right? And we all end up having to focus really hard on our KPIs in our job or what it is that's right in front of us because it's where the pressure is. And then you eke out enough time, you know, to have healthy relationships with family and friends and do some of the things that you like. But there isn't a lot of time. And around 2018 and 2019, I I think about gophers and silos and, you know, the gopher that pops up and looks around occasionally in spring. I felt like that a little bit. And when I looked around, I think my... My background concern about climate had been growing and I'd, I've had an awareness about it for a long time, but I think I had a mistaken assumption that if it was really, really bad, clearly the government would be, would be working on it because that's their job. And I sort of assumed that there was another group of people in their silos who were effectively doing something about it. And I think there's been a ton of different silos have been trying really hard, but not connecting and not having impact on culture, and not not actually being effective. And that's when I got really, really frightened, and it was also when I was a new dad as well. And so since then, I don't think I've been able to stop thinking about it. And in in the work that we do, we have been doing a lot of sustainability work. And, you know, we were involved in Palau and some of the things they've done and um, the Bay of Plenty and the Regenerative Tourism Plan and Copenhagen's sort of the end of tourism, which was all about resident quality of life, and a whole bunch of other similar plans, and there aren't many places that have been successful at implementing widespread change, which is why I'm very inspired by what's happening here.
0: I think there's so many things to unpack on what you've just said. I think in terms of, you know, the implication of what we've got to do. Um, That first role I had with the ILO looking at Occupational Safety and Health, and it was set up uh, with the League of Nations, so with the Treaty of Versailles 1919 um, League of Nations. It was the first UN institution um, before the UN existed, actually. Um, Some of the first things that were adopted were around um, working time and holidays. There were also conventions, like international conventions, around phosphorus and banning lead and getting all of these toxic substances um, prohibited. Uh, And When I thought about uh, coming out of that movie and a bit like you, you know, suddenly you're looking at everything, like this is coated in plastic, the base of this plastic is actually fossil fuel. Um, You look at uh, almost everything that we touch, maybe the fertiliser in those plants that comes from fossil fuel. Uh, to what extent we have embedded that toxic substance into our lives and how difficult it is going to be to get it out. But it has to be, um, and it will be. At some point there will be a, an international uh, convention or um, treaty saying that we are no longer able to use this or in very restricted, a bit like asbestos, because not only is it extremely harmful to human health it's extremely harmful to species health and it's also extremely harmful to the earth systems shifting earth systems which is our our, our life boat uh, in this universe so it will come um, and I think that that sense of community, um, I I keep on going back to Donella Meadows because it's the um, limits to growth 50 years this year I mean, it's a massive piece of work that was done and put forward uh, with Danela Meadows and others, but her iceberg analogy is one of my favourite. I like thinking in terms of uh, metaphors and and stories, but that iceberg uh, where you can sort of pick away um, at the top of the iceberg, but you'll never actually shift it and flip it. Um, At the bottom of the iceberg is the values. So, what we need to really and what we have been focusing on is shifting values, and that has been happening. It's not just um, uh, us doing it as a community, um, but it's actually a global shift, I think, in terms of values. In 2018, uh, with some of the other, I went down to Southland um, for a trip down there because they've been looking at decarbonisation for over a decade, Um, and they've got some truly inspiring people down there who have really been leading this. So we went down to visit them and sort of find out well, what, what made what made them sort of do this shift and how are they coping with that and coming back up with these other representatives of other environmental groups. No one wanted to touch climate change. They said it's too scary. We don't want to do it. So we weren't talking about it then. Uh, so we needed to bring that um, and that was what really helped us to focus where our um, attention and, and focus was going to go as we were going to lean into that and really start to talk about this is one of the biggest issues that we've got but looking at it in the sense of a very holistic framework so looking at it um, you cannot talk about um, Climate change, without discussing also the other elements to, of it—health um, and well-being, poverty, uh, sustainable communities—you've got to talk about waste. We have to talk That's about totally democracy. Interrelated. Totally interrelated. Um, so, uh, a couple of us on the board are working with UN, uh, and so it was the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which had been adopted in two thousand and fifteen, that were our big um, framework. That's how we, the lens through which we addressed climate change. Um, and going okay we need to go at this from so many different angles because it is all interconnected uh, and not just focus on this one goal um, but have that as the at the helm you know that's our guiding light is that's actually the most urgent thing that we need to do yeah. and we need to scaffold around it all of these other goals as well.
2: The climate centric view or blind spot potentially you know that it can create is a really interesting one and it's it's relevant to the ambition that's been catalyzed here through the the dmp um i gave a, a the opening keynote to a presentation for all the cities in europe a few years ago and it was the first time i'd really in a really public setting spoken out about climate in an industry that has a big blind spot towards the real impact of travel and the The topic I ended up exploring in my keynote was um, a hypothesis that climate first will lead to regeneration because it forces you to confront limits. And I think that's part of why I really wanted to push our team to put a really big, bold vision around climate first because the decarbonisation piece for such a carbon-intensive industry in a place that's on a Pacific island you know, that has heli- helicopters and jet boats and a lot of things are going to be difficult to decarbonise and a 150-year-old coal-burning steamship. Um, it's the hardest problem. So why don't we run at that first because of all the co-benefits that's going to create? And there's going to be a whole bunch of other work that it's doing around the outside. But if we can start to catalyse a different mindset and start to catalyse collaborative action around a really ambitious goal, that was, that was the hope. I just didn't imagine that it would be grabbed with so much enthusiasm. Which is why I want to keep asking you, how did that happen here?
0: Um, I think it's about, you know, we go back to the uh, regenerative. I would like to say sustainability and regeneration. Uh, people say, yeah, but I don't like that word. Yeah, we don't. It's new. It's maybe uncomfortable in your mouth, but they're the other words that we need to use. Lean into them. Um, sustainability is about looking at the world in a really holistic manner. Regeneration is the same. Uh, you just need to understand the concept and the definition, um, but don't not use it. Um, because that would be and don't misuse it Uh, in order to shift values you need to build like it takes time um, to build the soil up so if we take that analogy of soil um, you cannot change just overnight and there's a whole If you have a field that you're wanting to cultivate, you first have to look at the soil, what is in it. So the first thing that we did um, with the Trust is we did an ecosystems analysis of looking at our soil through the Sustainable Development Goals, with each of those goals and seeing in terms of who was doing what in the community and business and the environmental space and organisations. Where are the gaps? Where are the crossovers? Who's operating together? So looking at them in terms of uh, a constellation of, or um, I like to think of it as the mycorrhizal fungi under the ground. And what we found is that there were a lot, of, um, a lot going on, but not necessarily the connections, and so we weren't connecting up. Uh, and it's a constant um, uh, job to actually make sure that we are connecting. So one of the first things was, okay, we need to focus on collaboration and partnership and increasing that and talking to each other. Um, I think that realisation happened uh, simultaneously in a lot of other com- groups as well. Is we How do we connect better as a community? Because um, we're all doing really important things uh, And it's not about duplication, it's actually about some people can go, you know, if you look at that food systems um, piece, you've got so many things going on, but you need all of those nutrients in order for that soil to be ready for the seeds to be planted to grow into um, concrete actions. Um, so we, the last five years, I think that we have uh, been building up that soil. One of the first things uh, we did confront was around emissions in the tourism sector, um, and we had a discussion with Bridget McNevsky. We got um, James Heim, uh some other key players in the tourism industry to come and discuss what tourism is. And at that time, it was prior to uh, COVID hitting, there was also the question around social license, which was key. You know, we had just overwhelming numbers. So there were a lot of issues. There was the airport issue um, that we needed to start discussing. And you need to lean into it. I, I think it's about leaning into those pain points, because when you do lean into them, that's when you actually come up with solutions. If you keep ignoring them, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they become unmanageable.
2: And you bake so much risk into the system, right? And you keep perpetuating and trying to grow something that's got a very shaky foundation. A lot of the work that our team at Think has done over the last 10 years has been around those pain points. And for every community, it's different. Some of them are very clear physical things around degradation of ecosystems. And, um, you know, the very experience that people traveled for has been overrun with people. So, visitor experience and resident experience, and then hidden infrastructure costs, and I think there, there's a massive and, and quite natural value shift that's occurring. With COVID being a great accelerator of a lot of things, including that reflection, I wanted to ask you: Have you ever heard of the Cool Kits network or process? There's, there might be a few similarities with Wow. It was developed out of the University of British Columbia, and. I haven't dug into it that much, but there's there's some things. I heard a radio interview with the people who are applying it in a town on Vancouver Island, and it was a it's around connecting the community, and I I believe it has quite a loose format where, um, it's it's more of a social thing, and there's no whiteboards or agendas, but it's about bringing people together, where anyone can spark an initiative and grab and run with it. So one person's decided we need a compost initiative and they just grabbed it and, and implemented it within the community and so on and so on. Um, cause I think there, there's a lot we can learn from different things like that to help other places to do what you've done here and what other people like you are trying in their community and, and maybe do it in a way where it can happen in months rather than many years. Um, which is, I think, where our conversations are going to keep coming back to. <laughs>
0: I think it's really the that, that cool kids initiative. It actually makes me think about uh, so one of the first discussions we had um, post summit uh, um, was with the building sector because they saw what the hospital sector was doing with uh, suck free. So suck free Wanaka came out of it, getting rid of single use cups, yep. uh, and a lot of the cafe owners said, "We don't want. We. How do we get rid of single use plastics?" Um, so the idea behind that is you get a group of people around the subject together and really diverse, like making sure that you've got people from your council, people from the industry, uh, environmental groups, community groups, all together to say, you know, how can we address this issue? Uh, and that's where Suck Free said, well, we want to really focus on single-use um, plastic and maybe cups are the first initiative, so Suck Free was born. And um, I think that last year, it was the survey came out that of our community, or even more, I'm not sure about that exact one, refused to have single-use cups anymore. So it was a huge step up from when we did the survey in the beginning, uh, when that wasn't really too much of an issue, people were getting them. But now we've got systems in place as well to support that behaviour change. But another one that we had coming out of that first summit was a group in the building industry. So we had everyone from, there was Mita 10 who was there, placemakers rep was there, we had um, community groups, Ben Ackland who was really in the community, very focused on on waste, Uh, and a lot of the builders and tradies came. And they had three goals, and one of them was mental health, how can we build better, and building waste. And out of that conversation we had it at uh, one of the cafes in town, uh, we had so many initiatives that just got taken and either strengthened or supported and have now come to fruition. So we've um, had a number of, uh, of talks around mental health and looking at how we can support them because it was, it's was it got the highest rate of suicide in, out of any sector um, in New Zealand. Uh, we also had Ben Ackland, who had this idea to get a community workshop going. It's now been running for almost two years, I think actually two years, uh, and it's such an incredible spot for our community. Um, it's now got Fabricate, which is a they've got the community workshop, but also a textile branch to it, looking at um, how do we uh, reuse textiles and um, have a sewing room who anyone can go and use those tools. Uh, Another one was where um, Joel, who's placemakers, one of the builders was saying well they've got a real problem with uh, these waste in my bin, it's coming from your store because these fixations that you're giving me are, are in common plastic, there's only five of them in there, you know we, this has got to be this is ridiculous they're filling up my um, the, the bins and so he had worked really hard not just locally but nationally to get rid of completely of those plastic containers so that now nationally uh, those Uh, fixations are in a um, container that can be um, totally recycled Uh, I think it's in cardboard or something like that little shifts like that coming out of one conversation and one group of people getting together that's really magic but I think that there needs to be strategy around it as well Um, and that's about you know understanding the ecosystem and where you need to put those nutrients and what what is missing in your soil or where there's too much or how you've I think it's it's about being really intentional Uh, and understanding about where you can and can't go um, within that system Uh, and then sparking magic through getting people together.
1: Hi, it's David here dropping in. Before we close this episode, I wanted to include one more short segment of this conversation where Monique shares a little bit more about the approach she takes to collaboration in her community and how that works inspired by her career at the ILO or International Labour Organization based in Geneva. Here it is.
0: Coming from the ILO and looking at how that system operated is that you have um, essentially a, a governing house Uh, that comes together, and it's a tripartite structure. So you've got uh, employers, governments, and trade unionists all sitting around, and they are part of the decision-making body. Um, What that really sparked in me is the... I think there's only one subject or two subjects within 120 years of existence, 100 slightly more now, that they have not been able to agree on. And that power of collaboration when you're coming from completely opposing views is massive. Um, and that's a real example of top-down, bottom-up because you've got those representatives around the table. And I think that in a community what, you, what we need to realise is that those who are sitting in those organisations, the government, the, whether it's local or national, um, Those who are sitting in the business seat, those who are sitting in environmental seats or community seats, we're all part of the same community. So, community is what connects us all. There's not them in us. It's how do we work together. So, what we've been trying to do is in our groups ensure that uh, we've always got a representative from each of those spheres. And we're all sitting around the table with our opinions, but it's about creating the, um, ensuring that that balance the power structure is not such that you're giving more power to one than the other, it's all voices are equal uh, and that we have a really, it means that we have robust discussions. So uh, the the kind of the ethos is that you're coming into a room, there's a row of coat hangers outside that door, you hang your ego on the coat hanger before you come in and you come into that room and that space uh, open to discussion and with an open mind to leaning into those problems where we need to lean into
1: this has been travel beyond presented by destination think and you just heard from monique kelly of queenstown lakes we'll include links to some of the resources and initiatives mentioned in this conversation on the blog at destinationthink.com blog my co-host is rodney Payne. this episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me david archer Lindsay Payne and Annika Rotiola provided production support. Steve Henderson of Arcade Motion recorded this season's interviews and conversations. We would like to thank Destination Queenstown, Lake Wanaka Tourism, and Queenstown Lakes District Council for their participation, their willingness to be bold, and for their trust in Destination Think. You can help more people find this show by subscribing to future episodes and by rating us on Apple Podcasts. Next time, we'll speak with Matt Woods, the CEO of Destination Queenstown, who will tell us how the destination management plan is related to the social license for tourism and why local travel leaders are prepared to go first when it comes to decarbonization. Here's the tourism industry saying, we want to go carbon zero by 2030. If we can do it and show it can be done, then learn and do the same. Come join us. See you then.